1: Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is something of a legend in intelligence history himself. It's David Kahn, and many of you will know that name because he literally wrote the book. He is the one who wrote the Codebreakers, which became the seminal book on the whole uh, uh, practice, art, if you will, uh, the how-to's and so forth on codebreaking. Uh, it came out in 1967. It ran to over 1,000 pages, but it is the book you will find on every library shelf of a serious intelligence historian. Uh, he's currently on our board of directors. He's a former reporter with Newsday, and he was the editor of the Paris Herald Tribune. David, welcome.
0: Thanks very much, Peter.
1: Okay. You are a prolific writer. I know your most recent book is The Reader of Gentleman's Mail, Herbert O. Yardley, and The Birth of American Codebreaking. Uh, let me just ask you, what brought you to code breaking, just as a subject? You've literally devoted your life to this. Uh, you've gone from writing a book to being a bet-noir at the National Security Agency to now being one of their probably one of their best-known popular faces. What got you into this?
0: It's such a boring and banal story. <laughs>
1: it's, not, it's not boring. It may be benign.
0: <laughs> I read a book as a kid, at age of fourteen about code breaking. It was a book called Secret and Urgent by Fletcher Pratt. He was an excellent historian. He was mainly a historian of the American Civil War and of the Navy. And he was asked, I believe, by some publisher to write a book about codes and ciphers. And he was a wonderful, fluent writer. And I read that book at age 14, which I think is the age at which people develop sometimes lifelong interests. People get interested in astronomy or birds or whatever it is, and I got hooked on codes and ciphers, and I haven't
1: grown up ever since. But I think that's a wonderful story. I mean, it, it, it certainly encourages people to read, young people to read, see what it is that influences them and what makes an impression. Uh, in a word, how long did it take you to produce that seminal work, The Code Breakers?
0: Well, it's an unfair question because, uh, as I said, I became interested in codes and ciphers at 14, and I was reading books on it and studying the subject all during that time. Then what happened was that in 1960, two Americans from the National Security Agency, the code-breaking agency, their names were Martin and Mitchell, defected to the Soviet Union. They emerged from behind the Iron Curtain in a blaze of publicity. The New York Times carried their entire press conference in toto in, uh, on a page in the New York Times. And I was a reporter for Newsday at the time on Long Island. And I said, I know about this stuff. And I wrote the New York Times magazine saying, hey, listen, if you guys would like a backgrounder to tell about what these guys were talking about, are you interested? Let me know. So I, they said, yes, I wrote it. The story appeared in the New York Times magazine. And uh, the next morning, I was covering Supreme Court in Nassau County at the time. Uh, three or four publishers called me up and said, you want to write a book? So I signed with one of those. And uh, then I thought I'd knock that off kind of quickly because I was writing a book on how to make this code and break that code and all of that and with a little introductory historical chapter. Suddenly I was writing this historical chapter, and I saw that in this chapter I was on page 160, and in the year 1600, so something had to change. I turned it into a historical book. Nobody had really done it before, and worked on it for about seven years, and in the end out came the Code Breakers.
1: That's fascinating. That publisher had a a tiger by the tail and didn't know it. Do you, and I'm sure you recall, but there there's sort of a variety of stories about what happened when that book came out. Uh, one was that uh, the NSA was quite upset, and I think uh, there's even been a story they did a damage assessment on how much damage you know the publication of the book would would have done. Did you have any interaction with the, at the time? Another story is that they uh, there were efforts to uh, perhaps derail the book and have it not come out. Is any of that true? Some of that is true. I have no first-hand knowledge
0: about it, but uh, other people have investigated and have said, and I think it's true, that the head of NSA flew up to uh, New York, Macmillan, and said this book will damage national security, you shouldn't publish it. And Macmillan said no. I would like to think that they did it on the grounds of, of freedom of the press and all that, but frankly, I think they had too much money invested in typesetting and all of that, and they said no. And then the book eventually came out, and when I heard about this, I said, listen, you can't say that this book was just published without some kind of a notice that this was done. And they inserted in the preface, or I inserted in the preface, a statement that the book had been vetted by the Defense Department and said it was okay. I had removed a few minor things that they asked me to take out. Uh, Anyhow, that was a very good thing, because when the book came out, if that statement had not been in there, many people might have said, Dave Kahn is a traitor, he's revealing American secrets and all that. But since it had been okayed by the Defense Department, they couldn't say that. And the book, in the end, I think, helped more than it hurt, helped America more than it hurt. And I can tell you why if you want to know.
1: Yes, go ahead.
0: Uh, One day I was signing books at the National Security Agency, and there was a nice long line out the door that already was very nice. But one young man came up to me and said, you know, Dr. Kahn, you changed my life. Well, my kids have never even said that to me. <laughs> and so I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I read the Codebreakers, and I went into code breaking with the National Security Agency. Then three or four other young men in the same line said the same thing. So if three or four guys said that, others must have had that done the same thing, the book had the same effect. So that book has turned out to be a very positive effect on the national security and consequently on America's security.
1: Uh, that's, that's fascinating, and, and I think I've certainly encountered people who refer to that book as, you know, among the, 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 the serious books that they read when they were contemplating intelligence, going into that as a career. But at the time, uh, certainly NSA was initially uneasy, if not more, and yet uh, if we look at the arc of history as it were uh, you've gone from being uh, uh, perhaps a suspect character out there in the in the field of, of intelligence literature to actually uh, becoming their first scholar in residence and what i mean that that's quite a transition quite a change in in the uh, attitudes of the agency if nothing else
0: well you're right they were I was not the first, but I was a scholar in residence, and it was interesting that they changed from, my, from perceiving me as an enemy of the people to becoming a supporter of NSA. And uh, they did have me in as a scholar in residence, and uh, what they wanted me to do was write a biography of the first American cryptographer, namely Herbert Yardley, and I did that. And that book was, as I think you said, published by Yale, Called uh, the Reader of Gentlemen's Mail, a line which essentially comes from uh, Stimson's biography or autobiography, in which he closed down Yardley's Yardley's, uh, cryptanalytic agency, saying, "Gentlemen, don't read each other's mail," and closed it down. He was very moral, and it was 1929. There were no fears about anybody attacking America. The war was; the world was sick of war. And so he closed it down, saying Americans or gentlemen don't read each other's mail. At, and and right. as a consequence of that, uh, the book the book was published by Yale. And I, I like that book. But
1: and at the time that Stimson closed down the, uh, I think it was called the Black Chamber. The American at the Black time, Chamber, right? Yes. Uh, he was Secretary of State. Correct. Is uh, that correct? Yes. And was in fact the code breaking activity actually closed down? Even it, though he called for it.
0: It was closed down on the part of the State Department. The Army maintained a small research unit, and these people in the research unit, three young men under William Friedman, began uh, studying cryptology and then began attempting to solve Foreign codes, and as the 30s progressed, and it became increasingly evident that Germany and Japan were threats to the United States, the United States began solving Japanese codes, which was the main ones we could get because we couldn't intercept any German messages. So we began solving Japanese codes, which were Japan was perceived as a greater threat in any event because of our possessions in the you know in the Philippines and in. Uh, in Hawaii. So those were the messages that we began attempting to solve and gradually became better and better and solved those messages, including the famous purple machine, which we were able to reconstruct and solve and read uh, up to the time of Pearl Harbor. So everybody says, hey, we were reading their codes. How come we didn't stop Pearl Harbor? Because none of those messages ever said anything about Pearl Harbor, an attack on Pearl Harbor. The messages that we were reading were diplomatic messages, and the Japanese diplomats in Washington themselves were never told of an attack. It was therefore not possible to read any messages, because they were never sent, about the attack on Pearl Harbor.
1: And you referred to the, you referred to the purple machine. Was, I, I've, I've often heard purple referred to as the Japanese code. Was it it, it actually created on a particular machine like the Enigma machine that the Germans used?
0: It was not. It was a a machine. It was an actual machine. The principle was rather different than the German Enigma machine, but it was a cipher machine used by the Japanese uh, foreign office. Not the military, not the Navy or the Army, but the Japanese foreign office messages were enciphered in the Japanese purple machine.
1: You know, I, I think it's interesting you did that research for the book on Herbert O. Yardley and, and reviewed this incident involving Secretary Stimson. Did he have later occasion to change his mind? Stimson, you mean? Yes.
0: Yes, sure. when the world was engaged in World War II and Stimson was brought back as Secretary of War, he was a great supporter of the code-breaking activity. But this was wartime and uh, you were solving messages, and you were killing people. So uh, if you could solve messages, foreign messages, you would save American lives. So obviously he was in favor of code-breaking at that stage.
1: We, you know, we've, uh, much of the literature, including your own covers, uh, codes as used, you know, as far back as the Romans and the Greeks and so forth and so on. But in your view, when did code-breaking, the ability to, to, to get signals and break codes, when did that really become a major critical part of the intelligence take?
0: That's easy. World War I, and the cause was radio. Uh, when radio came into being, suddenly radio has the uh, great ability to transmit messages freely over long distance. You don't have to lay wire if you have a uh, scout going out 500 feet or 500 miles. You can just send radio message, but radio also has the disadvantage that anybody can listen to it. And so when you used radio, when generals used radio, the enemy began picking it up. And as a consequence of radio, the uh, enemy was able to pick things up and use the information about the enemy after solving codes to win battles. And there were a number of important battles in World War I which played a role Uh, in helping the Allies to win that war and in winning that war uh, it taught the generals how important code breaking was and suddenly code breaking which had never been paid attention to by the generals suddenly they realized hey this is a tool we can use to win battles with and it became an important
1: element in the armory of intelligence. Uh, Even today we're hearing about the role that signals intelligence, SIGINT for short, has played in in, Incidents going back as a sort of the firing of General MacArthur by President Truman and uh, incidents of that nature. Let me just ask you, David, for your comments on what we're dealing with today in the form of the Internet. And that is uh, my understanding, and I'm certainly no expert, that there are now commercial codes that are almost unbreakable. I mean, Unbreakable, even difficult not for almost. for governments to break. Yes.
0: They cannot There are many codes today which you can buy off a shelf which are unbreakable. So how does the government do that? In some cases, they can't break them. In some cases, people are put into those companies to put in as a a Trojan horse, as it were, so that there's a little Philip gimmick in the system so that if you know that, you can break those codes. Or in some cases, they simply can't be broken. Or you have to bribe people to do it. You have to go down to that level. Or people make mistakes. If you send a message, say you, there was one country which, uh, this is many years ago, which kept the same key in use for a year. Well, that's going to obviously make it easier for the enemy to break. So, humans are always the weak link in things. And if people make mistakes, or they send a message and it's not understood and they have to retransmit that message, that gives you two parallel plain texts which you can use as a rough in in bridge to go back and forth and break those codes. So it always comes down to the human element. The codes may be good, but people make mistakes and that's how NSA breaks them.
1: And it was a phenomenon just like that that enabled the government to break the the so-called Venona, code, that is a transmission by uh, the then Soviet Union uh, to its to its offices in Mexico and Washington and I think New York. And there was some an error that was committed that enabled us, and you probably, you, you certainly have the details on that, to actually uh, break their code for a period of time. Yes, the, the Russians, who are very good in code breaking and code making, uh,
0: made a mistake probably because they couldn't get a new key to their agents. This meant that the key was used twice, which is a cardinal sin in that one kind of system. So when the key was used twice, this enabled the American code breakers to begin to break into the Venona messages. And once they started breaking in, once you make the first break into it, you can start to widen that breach and read them uh, more and more. So it took them 20 years to read many of those messages, but they they were eventually uh, pretty much read in entirety.
1: You know, David, I want to uh, touch before we end here <clears throat> on something that uh, I know is a passion of yours. Uh, you take great interest in, in young people and their progress, and you referred earlier to people who would read your book and decided on a, on a career in working with codes or in intelligence, and uh, lately when I've seen you, you've been very taken up with the uh, foundation Uh, that is related to the National Security Agency and uh, uh, the possibility of that being uh, a a center of scholarship. Could you just elaborate on that? I know you've had a great deal to do with that.
0: Yes, the National Security Agency has a related foundation called the National Cryptologic Museum Foundation and this has a wonderful library there. Uh, It has an awful lot of books and I've given an awful lot of my books there and working with them is a woman who is the librarian there who is smart, who is hardworking, and is nice. And she's a great help. So I am hoping that this National Security Agency Foundation, National Cryptologic Museum Foundation, will attract people who want to use my footnotes, my the notes from my interviews and all of that, uh, to do studies on intelligence and make the Cryptologic Foundation a world center of studies in intelligence and in cryptology.
1: What a wonderful goal. It's so great, David, that you're able to work on that and that you've contributed your own materials and people can draw on that. Um, we get a fair amount of feedback on our, on our uh, and A lot of it is clearly from younger people. And I'll just ask you, sort of as a last comment, if someone were coming to you and sort of looking at a future and maybe considering something like uh, working in NSA. Uh, is Is the door closed? Are all the codes done now? You referred to unbreakable codes. What sort of future would you have in work like that? I
0: think they would have a fabulous future. I think the work is extremely interesting. If you're a mathematician or a computer scientist, there's endless frontiers there and fascinating work and the people I know there love that work. They are fascinated by that work. When an emergency comes up, they work day and night without extra pay to do it and they're serving the causes of freedom and of the United States, which I think it's, it's, there's no country like this and the ideals Mm -hmm. of the United States are the greatest and that's what they would be serving if they worked for NSA.
1: David, you referred at the top of the interview to having read a book by Fletcher Pratt, Secret and Urgent, and how that influenced you as a young 14, young 14 year old looking out at the world. It is wonderful to see you uh, with all of your accomplishments and at your age now to have that passion still inside of you. And it comes out when you talk about the subject and about, uh, and about the, uh, the museum center, the foundation. Uh, It's been wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. uh, You can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.